0: Well, thank you. It's um, definitely good to be with you this morning. Uh, there's going to be lots of things to get used to, like how do I lower this stand will be one. I got it. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for coming up, though. Um, uh, how about the band, right? Those guys are amazing. Give them a hand. I, I do read this, but it, it, it's very tiny print, okay? So I will not be reading from it on this stage this morning. I'm going to set it over here, but just so you know, I have one and I read it. It's it's there. Um, so it's been, oh, I can take this off now, All right? I'll start breathing through it. All right. Um, it's been a while since uh, I've been uh, at a church gathering, actually. We went a few times over the course of the, the pandemic uh, at a new church plant in Winthrop when we moved there over the summer. Uh, so, in reality, it's just good to be back with people uh, on a Sunday morning. And uh, I know that uh, the circumstances here, it's, uh, you know, not easy to go through a transition for, for any church. It doesn't really matter what the situation is, but when you go through a transition, there are all kinds of things that begin to happen. But one of the most important things is that the church really becomes and is necessary for the church to be the church. Um, because there's, there are gaps, there are holes, there are things that need to be done by a community for a community within the community that you're a part of. In so many ways, I'm an outsider. I'm an outsider. I don't know that you ever get to say uh, we if you grow up in Missouri and even if you've been in New England for 17 years. So in that way, I'm an outsider and I'm an outsider to this community. And uh, you will get to know me over the course of several weeks or months, and I will get to know you better. But you know what this community needs, and you know how to serve this community best and well. And if I can help you do that, if I can be a facilitator for that uh, in whatever way is helpful and necessary over the next weeks and months, I hope to be an encouragement to you, particularly on Sunday morning. So one of the things that, that I think is important about Sunday mornings, at least as I've come to understand the role and the work of a pastor on a Sunday morning, and I see this particularly in my college chaplaincy work, um, right. The, the college ministry work that I do with Sojourn Collegiate Ministry, we have between 16 and 20 full-time staff, so my full-time job is uh, reaching over 200 students Uh, every single year uh, on college campuses around Boston and New England. Um, You may have come here for all kinds of different reasons this morning. You may have have come here out of guilt because somebody uh, has asked you to come for weeks and months and you finally said yes, or maybe this is your church home. But one of the things that is important to me, at least in the work that we do, is that we really help people who have had some curiosity about faith in their life, but have never really explored who Jesus is in an intentional way. And uh, so the ministry that that we lead is really there. We don't do worship gatherings or even intense Bible studies. We really introduce people to who Jesus is and try to disconnect Jesus from so much of the cultural baggage that comes along with that name. If you didn't grow up in the church or around the church or uh, even with a knowledge or understanding of who Jesus is, it's very easy for us to fill that, that name, that idea of Jesus with all kinds of experiences, many of which may not be true about Jesus himself. And so uh, what I've learned is that even our kids who grew up around in the church, but I don't think it's just the case for kids, have no idea what to do with the Bible, Uh, When they pick it up. And so, a big part of what we'll try to do on Sunday mornings over the next several weeks and months is simply to understand what we're doing when we pick up the Bible and try to read it together. Um, My plan next week is that we would begin a series in the Gospel of Luke. And I was talking with Tom uh, Gertz yesterday, and uh, when I told him that, he goes, well, that, if, for those of you who know Tom, he said uh, that was the very first series I did when I very first came to, to Rockingham was go through the Gospel of Luke. So there was, uh, I, I've known Tom and Karen for a long time, and, and it, was, it was fun to catch up with them and, and just kind of hear that connection going all the way back. So what I want you to know this morning is this. I'm here for you to serve you on Sunday mornings. If there's a way I can be an encouragement to you during this transition Uh, Please let me know how I can help, because I won't be able to know that or see that as well as I can uh, as an outsider. But you will know how I can best serve you. Transitions can be a time of doubt as well, or a time of uh, uncertainty as we move forward together. Um, If you have never heard the advice, if something seems too good to be true... Than it probably is, then no doubt you have learned that advice the hard way. It's not, I don't have for me personally like an official bucket list of things that I want to make sure that I do before I die or before you know my arthritic knees give out, so I can't do them anymore. But if I did, here's one of the things that would absolutely be on my bucket list: it would be to sit on the glass at a Game 7 of a Stanley Cup Finals for the Boston Bruins. That would be on my bucket list of things I would want to do. And a couple years ago, the uh, Bruins were in the Stanley Cup Finals, made it to a Game 7, and I began to look at tickets. And uh, most of the tickets, just anywhere at, at the Garden, were going for somewhere between 1300 1400 $1,500, except there was one site that had tickets for $350. Now, you already know as I did when I saw that, that something is suspicious here. Something doesn't add up. If every place is selling them for this amount and one place is selling them for significantly less, it's probably too good to be true, right? And I'm guessing even if it's not the Boston Bruins, there's all kinds of ways that you can relate in your life to ways in which you've seen offers or ideas given to you that are just, you know, right away, this is too good to be true. Maybe it was that you know four-day, three-night vacation for next to $0. You're like, there's got to be a catch. There's got to be a catch. Or maybe it's that car that you know you've needed or the one that you've wanted, and you've looked around for it. In every dealership, it's a particular price within $500 or $1,000, and there's one place that has it for $5,000 less. You're thinking, oh, there's something wrong with that car. We have learned by experience to have a healthy dose of suspicion when things look too good to be true. And it serves us well to have some suspicion in our life. Peter David, who you may have never heard of before, but if you have ever uh, heard of Star Trek, he is the guy who wrote much of the Star Trek series, as well as uh, a a tremendous number of of comic books, wrote a young adult novel called Tiger Heart. And he gets to the heart of something that I think really captures our human experience when it comes to suspicion. He says, when you are a child, there is joy, there is laughter, and most of all, there's trust. Trust in your fellows. When you're an adult, then comes suspicion. So true, right? We have experiences with people, we have experiences in the world that Suddenly, we understand that even people can be, on the surface, too good to be true, and suspicion serves us well. Today, I want us to take a look at a text in Matthew. We're going to look at several passages in Matthew today. Um, some of you may know the climbers, and Dan Climber uh, had asked me to do some writing on this particular text. He only gave me three words. So I hope that doesn't say something about Dan's confidence in in my ability to unpack that, but he gave me three words that are found in this particular text, and I want to share a little bit with you this morning, because this has become foundational, I think, to how I understand following Jesus from this text today. It's found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. If you have been around church at all, you may have heard this passage uh, preached or talked about or even read it from the perspective of the last few verses that is sometimes known as the Great Commission. But we're backing up a little bit to the things that happened just previous to that. So we'll start in verse 16. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Those are the three words I want us to focus in on this morning. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you until the end of the age. It's interesting to me that of all the things that Matthew could include, in retelling this story as an apostle, as one who might have gone to the mountain that day, that he would include the three words, but some doubted. Wouldn't the story read so much better if you're writing it by simply saying, they went to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshiped. Then Jesus came to them and said, why include these three words in the text at all? But some doubted, the story is much better Without them, it seems. The apostles that came to the mountain that day had spent at least three years with Jesus. They had watched him perform miracles. They watched him confront religious leaders and hypocrites. They had seen him spend time with people who most had considered to be the down and out. Jesus was, in many ways, in many ways to people, too good to be true. He was offering them freedom. He was offering them salvation. He was offering them everlasting life. Jesus was healing the sick and making the blind see. He was turning the religious rituals upside down and calling people to a higher standard of living, a higher calling in their ethical and their moral life. So it's not surprising that large crowds would begin to follow Jesus, thousands of people. And also not surprising that many would hold him in suspicion, finding Jesus absolutely too good to be true. And of the hundreds or thousands of people that were following Jesus, there were 12 that were part of that inner circle that we call apostles, that were the close friends of Jesus, those that he invested in to continue the mission. These are the ones that he had told to come to the mountain that day, Jesus' closest followers. And when they came, some doubted. What I've experienced in the last 16, 17 years uh, moving from Missouri to New England is that you New Englanders have mastered this art of suspicion of people, by the way. You have mastered it. When I first moved to to Somerville, it's funny because the the only person we knew moving to New England uh, lived in Somerville, but he was leaving Somerville to move to New Hampshire, and he said, Tim, the only advice I'll give you is live anywhere but Somerville, okay? Of course, that's where we signed the lease and ended up living, and uh, two years after, we we lived in a place for two years, and we moved uh, somewhere in the same town in Somerville, just closer to the center of town. We lived there for 15 years in the same house. It's a small street it's a one-way street on Spencer Ave. Love our people, love our neighbors, and uh, became family to us on that street. But uh, except for one guy named Mel. And Mel was a former police officer. He'd had a heart attack on the job, retired. But Mel was the pinnacle of suspicion. For 10 years, I would drive up Spencer Ave., and Mel would hardly acknowledge my existence, rarely acknowledge my existence. On occasion, he might give me a nod, and on occasion, he might give me a little bit of a hand wave, but that was it. Mel didn't even talk to me. One time, I was with a friend of mine who'd lived on the street longer than me, who introduced me to Mel, and Mel simply acted like I was an inconvenience in that introduction. Fast forward to a couple of summers ago, And I'm walking home from work and I see Mel working in his garden on the side, you know, these small little side house gardens. And I just decide, I'm going to make Mel talk to me today. This is the day. And so I walk over to the driveway and I strike up a conversation with Mel. And this is not going to surprise you at all, but Mel knew everything about me. Mel knew everything about my kids, my family. He knew everything about our life on Spencer Ave and how long we had been there. And this is what you're going to know and understand, and you're already intuitively going to feel it. From that day on, if I was coming home from work, I had to go around the block to the other side of the street, because if I walked by Mel, I was guaranteed to be there for an hour. You know, suspicion had served Mel well all his life, and he knew that our, when people come to the street, it typically is a revolving door people are in, people are out. How do you invest in people? Who do you know who to invest in? Are they going to be there? Are they worth investing in? So we hold people with suspicion. But here's the thing. we, Even though suspicion serves us well, suspicion isn't fuel. Doubt isn't fuel. Suspicion and doubt didn't create a relationship between me and Mel that day. An active step of faith, of crossing the street, created a relationship with Mel and I that day. Mel knew all the information about me. He had every piece of knowledge he could possibly know. It wouldn't surprise me if he actually did a background check on me at the, from his buddies at the police department. But at the end of the day, it's not information, that drives us forward. Information is not the fuel. We don't trust data, we trust people. And in our world today, that is certainly something we experience on a day-to-day basis. Somebody quotes these experts, somebody quotes these experts, who do you trust at the end of the day? What data do you trust? What information do you trust? At the end of the day, we don't trust data and information, we trust the people it came from. We trust and we put our faith in people. That idea of doubt or suspicion not only has served us well, but it served the disciples well as they followed Jesus. That word doubt that Matthew uses here in the text, it's interesting when you read the scriptures, when you read the Bible. I didn't really grow up reading the Bible. I, have, I was around church, but I wasn't in church. I didn't know Jesus until I went to college. And so I had a very naive view or perspective about the Bible. In my mind, the Bible could have been written four years ago, 50 years ago. This is when I was young and hadn't studied it. It could have been written 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. I had no clue. I don't know if you've ever ever felt that too. Like, I have no idea how to read this thing or how to pick it up. But one of the things that's interesting when you pick up and you begin to read the Bible, particularly if you're looking at at a text like Matthew is... What are the places that they repeat words often, and how do they use them? And Matthew has this word doubt that he uses in this text. There's only one other place that Matthew uses that word, and he uses it in a story that that he tells first. It begins with Jesus feeding a large group of people, around 5,000 people. Maybe you've heard that story before. With five loaves and two fish, Jesus feeds an entire crowd. It's, it's an incredible, incredible miracle, something that if you saw it with your own eyes, you'd what? You'd be suspicious. <laughs> you'd go, yeah, that, that's a trick. I don't know how he did that. But we would hold it out here just a little bit. So here's where we pick up the story where Matthew uses that word doubt again. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him. This is after he feeds the crowd. While Jesus dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves and the wind that was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake again. Are you with me? Suspicion, right? Who walks on water? No one. So we're going to hold that out here for a little bit. Even the disciples held it out here. Here's their explanation, Matthew says. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. Rightly so. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, then tell me to come to you on the water. Come on, Jesus said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind... He was afraid. Here's reality. Here's where reality hits us in the face. He was afraid, and he began to sink, and he cried, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus reaches out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why do you doubt? And there's our word again. Now, here's the interesting thing. When they climbed into the boat, Jesus and Peter, the wind died down. Then those who were on the boat did what? They worshiped, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This word worship is an interesting word, too. It, it literally means that we do something with our body that, that acknowledges the significance of someone. In, in ancient culture, it was often bowing down to your knees and or kissing someone on the feet or kissing their hands. But there's an acknowledgment that you, there's something here that's greater than, than me. And there's a connection between worship and doubt in both stories. So when Matthew uses it, doubt is very present. Suspicion is very present. But so is worship. This idea that you are greater than me, and there are things here that I don't quite understand yet, and I hold in suspicion. The two go hand in hand. As someone who my whole life has struggled with a healthy dose of suspicion, I'm a historian by education. That's how I'm educated. And so as a historian, you hold everything in suspicion. Everything has a bias. Everything has a point of view. So it's everything I've always been taught and trained. I found this explanation to be very helpful to me. And if you ever struggle with your own doubts, even within your faith, or maybe someone who is not yet a follower of Jesus, and it's the thing that has kept you out, here's something that's been very helpful to me, even as I wrestle in that space of doubt and worship. It's from a Catholic theologian named Leslie Newbegin. He wrote a book called Proper Confidence. and This has always stuck with me. He said, one does not learn anything except by believing something. And conversely, If one doubts everything, one learns nothing. On the other hand, believing everything uncritically is a road to disaster. So true, right? If you think about it, every single day, every single day that you and I, even us showing up this morning is an act of some kind of faith. We had faith that we would arrive here alive or you would have never left your house, You had faith that people would stay on the correct side of the road as you made your way here. You had faith that that it wasn't going to snow today or ice storm today so that you could arrive here safely. There are any number of things that you've already done in this day that is an act of faith. You don't know for certain. You can't have absolute 100% certainty about any of it, but you have some confidence that this is the way things are going to be today. And so I'm going to move forward, taking this step confidently that this is what's going to happen. And essentially, this is what New Begin is saying, is if you live your life, none of us live our life in complete and utter suspicion that nothing can be true and real and right. Take love, for example, or care or justice. We believe that those things have some, some... purpose, some meaning. And we we act and we walk and we interact with people as if love, kindness, justice matter. We don't simply doubt it and do whatever we want or allow other people to do whatever they want to us. We believe that there are some things that matter and that's what drives us forward. It's what allows us to take a step ahead. Uncritical thinking though uncritical belief is also a road to disaster because sometimes things are too good to be true, right? What New Begin is saying is that doubt is always present, but there's a dance that takes place between faith and doubt. Doubt's always present, but doubt can never lead the dance. It will never take you anywhere. It will never lead you anywhere. You can't dance if doubt leads. Faith has to lead. Faith is what got Peter out of the boat, even though he sank. Faith took the disciples to the mountain that day, even though doubt was a companion. I was asked one time to speak at a a church that was in the very definition of the middle of nowhere in Missouri. It was a four-hour drive there and a four-hour drive back. And uh, as you might imagine, I was not looking forward to it uh, great people there. I, it was my very first ministry, and I love the people, but I, I did not want to make that drive. And uh, the university I was serving at had, a, had a, their biggest program on campus is an aviation program. And so one of my students came to me and said, hey, listen, uh, I need to log some hours of flight. So if you'll pay for the fuel, I'll fly you up. Here's what you need to know. I'm terrified of flying, okay? Particularly in a small plane like that. I was like, there's no way. So I had to weigh these two things, my suspicion of flight and my trust in Matt and my desire to not be on the road for eight hours. Now, I did all my research, and those of you who maybe are scared of flying, you you know this also to be true. And I'll just share this with you because I found this to be a crazy piece of information. I know what the physics say about flying. I've researched all the data, and I know that it's – I know that it's safer to fly than it is to drive, especially eight hours that far on winding roads in the country where deer jump out. I know all this. And I know, and I've read, I said I can't, I don't know, but I've read by people who've done the research that the 747-8 airplane, this is crazy to me, has a maximum takeoff load capacity of 1 million pounds. A million pounds. It can fly from L.A. to Melbourne, Australia without refueling. That blows my mind, okay? I know that, and I know people do it. I don't want to do it, but I know that it's possible, and I know people do it. So that day when I got in the four-seat Cessna at the airport at the university, I partially did so because I'd done my homework, partially did so because I knew the data and the physics, But you already know mostly why I got in that plane that day. I got in the plane because I trusted Matt. Matt was going to be my pilot. Matt had proven himself in my relationship with him to be thorough, to be trustworthy, to be conscientious, thoughtful, humble, and most importantly, detail-oriented. Ultimately, I knew Matt wanted to make it home just as much as I did. See, when the disciples met Jesus on the mountain that day, they, they had seen, they'd done the research of the scriptures of the Old Testament. They know what Jesus had done. And they'd walked with him for three years every day. They'd seen the integrity of his teaching. They'd seen his life. They'd seen what he had done and how what he taught and what he did aligned with one another like no one else they'd ever seen. They'd seen him work miracles. They'd, they'd seen him do things that they held in suspicion that just seemed impossible. But it's the question that we have to ask on a day-to-day basis. Information doesn't typically give us or move us over the tipping point when it comes to what is life all about. We can collect information our entire life, But ultimately, at some point, we take steps of faith based on what we believe to be most likely to be true. That's ultimately what faith is. Faith is not certainty, but faith is also not trusting just in information or the data, but trusting in a person. In the Gospels, we see Jesus weep over death. We see Jesus get angry with greed that's corrupting the souls of people. We see Jesus experience betrayal of loved ones. We see him endure the pain of false accusation and an unjust crucifixion and his own physical pain of being crucified. When things are bad around us and we hold in suspicion whether things can be good, Jesus has endured all of that. And listen to his words on the cross as he begins to take his final breaths. This is from Matthew chapter 27, just before he resurrects in his time on the mountain with the apostles. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In your darkest, hardest moments of life, when you aren't sure what your next step can be, I want you to know and understand it isn't information that will get you through. It will be the trust in the person who has endured what you have endured and rose to newness of life. And that is the person of Jesus. Ultimately, when the disciples saw the resurrection, wouldn't you hold that in suspicion? I do. I've never seen it happen before, except Jesus. But hundreds of people and dozens saw him, witnessed him, At that time, there's no reason for us to have any uh, record of Jesus historically except that people believed what they saw, and there was something about Jesus compelling. There's so much more I would like to say, but I'm going to run out of time, as that timer is telling me. I met with a doctoral candidate uh, in psychology when she was a student, And she had a crazy conversion experience I'll tell you about sometime. But uh, I had coffee with her a couple years ago, and I was asking her about her relationship with God. And she said this to me, and it's just really stuck with me. She said, I think I only feel God in a relational way when I'm desperate. I think I only feel God in a relational way when I'm desperate. On the one hand, I thought about that, and I was like, well, that's too bad. On the other hand, I thought, is it that kind of... The point? Isn't, it, isn't that the point we need Jesus most? Because where else are you going to turn when you look at the world around you and you go, things just kind of, power seems to win and ugliness seems to win and bad people don't seem to get what they deserve. And, and if I'm honest in my most honest days, I'm not the person I want to be all the time. And I certainly contribute to some of that undoing of the good in the world around me. And isn't it the most desperate times and moments that we really want? to see and have a relationship with the person? One other thing uh, Matthew says or records that Jesus said, and and I want to end here today. After the apostles were unable to perform a miracle that Jesus comes and does himself, he he says this to them, Truly I tell you, if you have the faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. You can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And I've always I've always read that passage with a sense of, um, I'm not enough. I don't have enough faith. Because if I just had that much faith, I could move mountains. And I've always seen that as like this negative thing. But the reality is that in the last couple of years, I've begun to see that in a much more positive light. Because I don't really have a need to move mountains. I mean, there probably be times it would be convenient to do something like that, but... The reality is I just need enough faith that gets me up the mountain with my doubts. I just need enough faith that brings me here on a Sunday morning to worship. I just, I just need that much faith. And if, if, if the faith of a mustard seed moves mountains, then how little faith does it take just to show up and worship and say, God, I don't know, but I'm here with my doubts? How much faith does it take just to take that small step? Suspicion serves us well, but it doesn't move us on a day to day basis. And we don't put our faith in information, we put our faith in a person. We don't put our faith in religion, and we don't put our faith in rituals, but in the person of Jesus who has endured and has overcome and brings life from death. Maybe today is a day you finally take that step to say, This is where I'm at, and I'm going to be honest. God with you, but I'm desperate to see something change and something new happen in my life. So here I am with my doubts and my suspicion, but I'm here in faith. And that's all the faith it takes just to take that one simple step. There's a lot more I would say to you today, but I'm going to pray and we have lots of weeks to go. Father, this morning... I, I just am recalling in my own mind all the times that, in doubt, I didn't want to show up. In doubt, I held you in suspicion. In doubt, I held even my own faith in suspicion. And Yet, when I, when I asked the question, where else would I go, how else would I see life and good come in the world, except by the one who has overcome death, it's, it's hard to see. And so this morning, you know my heart and you know our hearts collectively here. And so we show up with our doubts, with our suspicion, but in faith that you can move mountains even when we can't, that even when we're desperate, even when the winds buffet against us, even when the storm comes and, and we've taken a step and we begin to sink, that you are the one who can reach out and pull us up, even even in our doubts, because you are there in those desperate moments. Father, we pray this morning uh, that you help us to take whatever that next step is uh, in faith, to do that in community with other people. We pray today in Jesus' name, amen.